nice to get the choir back, isn't it? It just is glorious. We're grateful for your ministry. A uh, little family news that I think you'd be interested in. Ellis and Rachel White and their two kids uh, are in England right now. First time in two and a half years they were able to get there because of all the visa issues. So they're enjoying a three-week stay at home. And it's snowing right now in England. <laughs> That's what you get for going back to that place. Um, what, uh, what you may not know is that there was actually one last little piece of work that needed to be done for them to be able to come back. It wasn't on our side. This time they had to go to some embassy somewhere in London and, uh, and get a final approval to allow them to return and continue with us. So we were kind of sitting on tenterhooks. The good news is the final stamp has been delivered to whatever piece of paper they need. So... so they will be coming back. Um, it's good to see all of you this morning because I know there are other things that you might be occupied with. Uh, as it turns out, if don't judge your brothers and sisters who aren't sitting where they normally would be. Last night we had over 300 people crammed into the memorial chapel, so that's good. But, but here you are on a, on a Sunday morning. Um, it seems that the Vikings wanted to give us one last lease on life, didn't it? Um, 23 seconds to go. I, I think we were all pretty sure last week that... Um, that the, uh, the Seahawks season was over and we'd look forward to, to next year. And then came that kick. Was that unbelievable? Just unbelievable. I've been looking into, uh, into it a little bit because I couldn't understand how this guy, Blair Walsh, who is actually a very reliable kicker, one of the best in the league, how in the world could he miss a, a kick that's shorter than a field goal or than a point after attempt? Uh, uh, and so I looked into it a little more carefully. You know what? I have uncovered what I think was really going on there. Most aren't aware of it, but if you'll take a close look at the screen, you will figure out what happened there last week. Maybe a, a little closer, close-up look, if we could. Yeah, that... So doesn't that explain everything? You know, we were glad to win the game, but there's not a, a, a decent human being, uh, even on the Seahawks side, who didn't feel awful for that poor kicker. And you know that he had to feel like the, the loneliest man on earth. Do, don't you imagine that in, that in their locker room afterwards, he, Blair Walsh was here, the rest of the team was over here. Pretty lonely guy. This morning as we continue in our journey through the story, we're going to take a look at another guy in the story who probably shared a lot of those same feelings. He must have felt like the loneliest man on earth, like he was the only one on his side and everyone else was on the other side. And as it turns out in this story, that was exactly the case. We are journeying through a book called The Story. It is an abridged version of the Bible. We're running from September all the way through June with the hope of taking a look at the major themes, kind of the 30,000-foot view of Scripture, so that at the end of the day, we'll have a sense of the themes and the flow and our part in uh, God's story. So I just want to ask how many uh, read your chapter from last week? Good for you. This is, you're, you're always the most faithful in doing that. Good, good job. Last week, we um, read a really a sad uh, part of the story, didn't we? We saw the, um, the disruption of God's people. The Lord called Abraham. He said, I, I want to form a people by which I'm going to bless the whole world. But last week, we saw that as a result of Solomon, King Solomon taking some very bad advice and, and his successors in 
kind doing the same thing, uh, we see that the, the people of God, the nation of Israel, is, is torn in two. And suddenly the, the, the one become two and they will never be reunited again. To the south was a kind of the rump kingdom uh, comprised of Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Remember, the, it's Judah and little Benjamin. And the name of that uh, kingdom to the south was Judah. Judah. Uh, it would be helpful if you participate with me. Uh, t- uh, to the north is ten tribes. Remember, the ten tribes. And that nation, that kingdom is going to be called what? Israel. And of course, now you've got two kingdoms, so you've got two sets of kings. To the south, again, in Judah, they will ultimately have 21 kings and one queen. And of that crowd of kings, you wish that the story was better, but as a matter of fact, there were only a few of them, these kings in Judah, that really had a heart after God. And actually only two, Hezekiah and Josiah, who were unqualified in their support and their love of God and their devotion to God. But there were a lot of crummy kings in Judah. So only about five good ones, only two great ones. Then you turn your eyes to the north and you come to Israel. And uh, out of their 150-year history as a kingdom, how many good kings did Israel have? Any guesses? Zero. Zero. Not one good king to the north. One bad one after another after another. And I'm telling you, there was some bad stuff, as you will see in the story that you're going to read in this coming week. But the worst king of them all was a guy named Ahab. Say Ahab. And you know, they say behind every good king, a good man is a great woman. Well, behind every evil king is apparently a very evil woman because he married up or married down, however you want to look at. When he married a woman, she was the worst. She was an evil, evil babe. What was her name? Jezebel, Ahab and Jezebel. Jezebel's favorite hobby was finding and killing the prophets of Yahweh. She was determined to crush the people of God and by, by destroying their prophets, the prophets of Yahweh. So that's the kind of crowd we're talking about. So, uh, so that's what, but God didn't give up on them. God didn't give up on his people. And so over those hundreds of years that they were, that these, this divided nation and, and kings, some good, but mostly bad, God kept calling them back to himself. He would send messengers, spirit-anointed messengers who would come to them and call them to repent and call them back to himself, remind him of his love for them. What do we call those God messengers? Prophets, yes, the prophets. There were about 70 prophets that we can identify in the, in the Bible. The last 17 books of the Old Testament are all prophetic books written by or written about some of these messengers of God. And if you were to look at the totality of all the prophets that God ever raised up, by far the most famous would be considered kind of the, the representative of all of the prophets was a guy named Elijah. Say it. Elijah. He's mentioned, I think, something like 25 times in the New Testament. This is how significant Elijah was. John the Baptist was considered the second appearance of, of Elijah. So you have the greatest, king, the greatest prophet, Elijah, and you have the most evil king, Ahab, and his wife, Jezebel. Guess to whom God sends uh, Elijah to, to, to confront? It's, it's Ahab. So come, here comes Elijah and Ahab, and you are in for a cataclysmic uh, clash of, of powers. And that's what we're going to see happen uh, this morning. Uh, it's a great duel. In fact, it's, it's, 
it's uh, 450 prophets of Baal that belong to Ahab against one lone prophet named Elijah. Many of you will remember the famous story of the one, soul, the one sheriff against the, the bad guys uh, at high noon. Remember that? This is kind of what we're talking about in the, in the story that we are going to read today. It is one of the most exciting, uh, blood-stirring accounts that you're going to find in the Scriptures. And it comes from 1 Kings chapter 18. I'm going to read it out of the message. And I just want you to listen because it is a, it is a powerful story. Okay, so listen to this, this uh, high noon moment between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. So King Ahab summoned everyone in Israel, particularly the prophets, to Mount Carmel. Elijah challenged the people, How long are you going to sit on the fence? If God is real, follow him. If it's Baal, follow him. Make up your minds. But nobody said a word. Nobody made a move. Then Elijah said, I'm the only prophet of God left in Israel. And there are 450 prophets of Baal. Let the Baal prophets bring up two oxen. Let them pick one and butcher it and lay it on the altar on firewood. But don't ignite it. I'll take the other ox and cut it up and lay it on the wood. But neither will I light the fire. Then you pray to your gods. And I will pray to God. And the God who answers with fire will prove to be in fact God. And all the people agreed. Elijah told the Baal prophets, you go first. So they took the ox and prepared it for the altar. And then they prayed to Baal. And they prayed all morning long. Oh, Baal, answer us. But nothing happened. Not so much as a whisper of breeze. Desperate, they jumped and stomped on the altar they had made. By noon, Elijah started making fun of them. Call a little louder. He's a god after all. Maybe he's off meditating somewhere or on the toilet or maybe he's on vacation. (laughs) You don't suppose he overslept, do you, and needs to be waked up? They prayed louder and louder, cutting themselves with swords and knives, a common ritual, until they were covered with blood. This went on until well past noon. They used every religious trick they knew to make something happen on the altar. But nothing happened, not so much as a whisper. Then Elijah told the people, enough of that, it's my turn. He put the altar back together, for by now it was in ruins. Then he dug a trench around the altar. He laid firewood on the altar, cut up the ox, put it on the wood, and said, fill four buckets with water and drench both the ox and the firewood. Then he said, do it again. And they did it. Then he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. The altar was drenched and the trench was filled with water. Then Elijah came up and prayed, O God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, make it known right now that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I am doing what I'm doing under your orders. Answer me, O God. Answer me and reveal to this people that you are God, the true God, and that you are giving these people another chance at repentance. Immediately the fire of God fell and burned up the offering, the wood, the stones, the dirt, and even the water in the trench. 
All the people saw it happen and fell on their faces in awed worship, exclaiming, God is the true God. God is the true God. Elijah told them, grab the Baal prophets. Don't let one get away. They grabbed them. Elijah had them taken down to the brook Kishon, and they massacred the lot. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, this is, a, this is an inspiring story, but it is also your word to us in this moment, in this day. I pray that we're not so taken up by the wonder of it, the drama of it, that we fail to see the way in which your spirit is speaking to us through it right now, this moment. So we ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. I think I've got a little ring coming through. You've been hearing me talking about the fertility gods that were prevalent in and around the area of Israel. Um, When you hear the word Baal, really that's not one god. That is kind of a catch-all phrase for all of these pagan gods, okay? So Baal wasn't one god. It's kind of a a catchphrase for every one of these fertility gods. And I've shared with you really the the horrible nature of this pagan worship. Uh, They had temples that were really houses of prostitution. Uh, They had um, the acts of worship that included the, the sacrifice, the burning of their own children. They were, it was really awful, awful stuff. This is what we're talking about when we say Baal. And where were all of these temple complexes built? On the high places, right? High ground so that no matter, no matter where you turn to look, you would see this reminder of pagan idolatry. So it is interesting, I think, that Elijah calls them out on Mount Carmel. There's a t- picture of it. Mount Carmel, and that's, that's what it looks like. And and really, when Elijah says, let's meet there, he's saying, I'm going to meet you on your turf. I'm going to meet you on your high places, and we're going to have a showdown. Um, How many have ever watched Bobby Flay's Throwdown? Any of you? It's it's a fun show. It's kind of usually a barbecue competition between Bobby Flay and some other other would-be chef. Uh, Well, this is kind of a a throwdown, a barbecue competition with a, a lot more at stake. Uh, I don't mean that. I, that. I didn't. No, I don't. No, that's awful. I, I did not mean that, and I, I won't use that again. Sorry. But Elijah, uh, he, he challenges uh, the prophets of Baal, all 450 of them. Just think about that for a moment. I mean, if, if all of you here stood up down, on, that's about 450 people. So it was 450 to one. And he challenges them. He says, I want you to go ahead, choose your bull, slaughter it. Build a, uh, lay that, lay the wood for a fire on this altar, put the wood, uh, the, the ox on there, but don't light it. And then I'll do the same, and we will pray to our respective gods, and whoever answers with fire will know that's the true God. The people said, that sounds good. The priests, I think, were saying, I don't think that sounds good at all. But the people said, yeah, that sounds like a fun game. Let's do that. And so they started. The prophets of Baal started. They began early in the morning, and they began to pray, and nothing happened. It went on for hours, we are told, and nothing happened. And then they decided to do a little dancing, some river dancing on the top of the, of the altar, maybe to get God's attention. And, and that didn't do anything other than break the altar that they were dancing on. And they began to scream their prayers out in desperation. Finally, about noon, Elijah offers some very helpful advice. 
he says, a, a shout a louder. Maybe he's meditating somewhere or maybe he's sitting on the toilet. That's a literal translation of the Hebrew. Maybe he's meditating. Maybe he's relieving himself. And so pathetically, they take him up on his advice. They begin to scream even louder. And they do more than that. They're dancing. They're screaming. They begin to slice their skin with knives. And so the blood is flowing. Can you imagine the look? 450 people screaming, dancing, ranting, bleeding all over the place. To no avail. Ultimately, weakened by the loss of blood, their their throats raw from the screaming. They finally just collapse in exhaustion. And then Elijah says, okay, it's my turn. We are told in the story that as you will read it, he says, he tells everyone, all right, now come in here a little closer. And so they they bring them in. He brings them all in a little closer. And he rebuilds the altar that had been destroyed. And then he does something interesting. He digs a ditch around it. One of the interesting things about the historically is that this was in the, in the midst of an of a, a awful years-long drought. And so even what he was about to do itself was an act of faith because he says, I want you to for, fill up four great jugs full of very precious water and I want you to dump it on top of the ox and on, on top of the wood. So they do it. Four of them. He says, do it again. Four more. They do it again. Four more. He says, one more time, four more. So 12 jugs. What do you think that 12 might represent? Probably the 12 tribes of Israel. This is one for every one of you people. One for every one of your tribes, just to remind you who we're talking about. So by the time they're done, they have soaked the ox, they have soaked the wood, and the trench that surrounds the altar is filled with water. And then it is Elijah's turn to pray. And he doesn't rant. He doesn't dance. He doesn't scream. He doesn't slice. He doesn't dice. He just prays. He said, Oh God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, God of all of us, I pray that you will show yourself in this moment. I pray that you will prove to them that you are God and that I am your servant and I'm doing what you have ordered me to do. God, would you come down and do this thing right now? And of course... In that moment, the, the fire came from heaven. It might have been lightning, who knows, but fire came from heaven and struck the altar and lit the whole thing on fire. And we are told that the fire was so hot that it consumed not only the ox, but the wood, the stones of the altar, the dirt upon which the altar sat, and it, and it consumed all of the water in the trench that surrounded it. It was a magnificent show of the power of Yahweh, And when this had occurred, he said, all right, now seize the prophets of Baal. All 450 of them, don't let one get away. And so they did. And we are told that he took them from the breast of that hill down below to the the creek, the Kishon Brook, which is below. And they slaughtered them in that brook. And the water of the Kishon ran red that day. I've stood on the top of... um, I'm still on the top of, of Mount Carmel many times. And uh, when, you, when you ride to the top, you'll see this statue. It's a statue of Elijah. You'll see there it is. You see him and he's got his sword up. And that's one of the prophets, one of the 450 prophets of Baal that he has uh, struck down. And it is a very inspiring place. It's one of my favorite spots because you know you're standing on the Mount Carmel. You're looking down at the Kishon Brook. And you know, somewhere here on this site is where all of this took place. It's very inspiring. 
And am I, I wasn't kidding, wasn't it? It's really one of the most dramatic stories that you'll find in the Bible. But you know, we're not reading the, the story. We're not reading these stories in order just to be stirred and inspired. We are reading the story to ask the question, what part do I play in this story? How is this not just an ancient uh, account from 2,700 years ago? How does this speak to my life today? And I'd like to look at two ways in which I think that is true. First of all, this story is a cry to God's people today to stand up against our sexualized, idolatrous culture. I, I would just ask this question. Is our society today any less consumed with sex than their society was? Is our society any less idolatrous than the time of Elijah? Is our society any less willing to sacrifice our babies on the altar of convenience and pleasure? Over 55 million and counting. We might not call our idols Baal, but we are awash in a culture that worships sex, worships pleasure, and we, the people of God, who ought to know better, are becoming more and more numb to it all. And so to God's people today, to God's people who are being sucked into the idolatry of our time, I think the words of Elijah, and especially the words of Elijah in verse 21, they ring out Powerfully, Verse 21 says, this is Elijah speaking to the people of Israel. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. That word waver is a very interesting word. It actually means limp or wobble. And it is in the Hebrew, it is the image of a drunkard who is on a sidewalk walking down the road, wobbling back and forth because he can't walk a straight line. How long will you wobble? How long will you limp your way through life? How long will you sit on the fence? Elijah cries out. You are are living a wobbly, wishy-washy spiritual life. Israel, you cannot make up your mind. Should we follow Yahweh? Sure, that sounds fine. Well, what about Baal? Oh, okay, why not? How about the Asherah? Can we throw them in? Why not? The Moors, the merrier. Wobble, wobble, wobble. Torn from one side to the other. And Elijah cries out, Will you make up your mind? If Yahweh is God, then follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. But stop this pathetic wobbling from side to side in life. This is not the first time that God has called his people to a point of decision like this, is it? Remember Joshua, the last chapter of Joshua before they're getting ready to go into the promised land? Remember what he said to the people? He says, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Remember that? And here's one that we're going to see later on in the story. It's even harsher words pronounced by the Lord Jesus himself in a vision that we have in in the book of Revelation. Jesus is speaking to the Christians at Laodicea. And he comes out with this harsh pronouncement against them. How would you like to be on the receiving end of this? He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. 
So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to vomit you out of my mouth. Our American church is stricken with indecision, ambivalence about spiritual and moral things. We wobble between opinions about who Jesus is and how we ought to live. We bow our knee before the God of tolerance and and diversity and choose to live in a spiritual fog, hoping that everything will work out in the end, but with no real idea of how that might happen. I wonder how many of us this day, if you were being honest with yourself, and probably you're the only one that you could be this honest with, would admit that you are wobbling your way through life. You wobble your way here on a Sunday morning or a Saturday night to meet Jesus. And then on Monday, you wobble your way to to school or you wobble your way to work or you wobble your way to the club and there you worship the same pagan gods the rest of our culture worships. Pagan gods of materialism and sexuality and power and wealth acquisition. And the truth be told, there are too many... Too many of God's people who have not chosen to follow Christ unwaveringly. Too many of us who are living lukewarm, wobbly, embarrassing spiritual lives. And if you're not sure that's you, then I'm going to give you a little wobble test. Here's four points on the wobble test. Wobble test number one. Does anyone, is anyone in your workplace aware that you are a follower of Jesus? Is anyone in your workplace aware that you are a follower of Jesus because you've shared your faith with them, because you've invited them to church, because you said, hey, uh, could, could I pray with you about that? Is there anything that you have done that would make the people around you, even in the slightest, aware that you are a follower of Christ? If not, you might be a wobbler. Wobble test number two. Take a look at your calendar. Is there anything in your calendar that would speak clearly to your devotion to Christ? As they page through the pages where they find, ah, there's the Bible study. Ah, there's the life group. Ah, there's the trip to, the mission trip to go out to Mexico or over to the Tacoma streets or to work with net, net, uh, with, um, with life. CareNet. CareNet. That was an ad lib. That's always dangerous. Ad lib. Is there anything at all about your schedule that people will look like? Is there a place that you've set aside for, for daily prayer, daily study of God's word? Anything about your calendar would say, yes, I am devoted to the Lord and my calendar reflects that. If not, you are a wobbler. Here's the third test. If anyone got their hands on your computer history and looked at the last week to the sites that you visited, would it be a testimony to your Christian witness? Your character? Or would it be a humiliation to you? Or this. If anyone got their hands on your checkbook, your register, and they looked at the way you spend your money, would there be anything about your generosity towards the things of God that would tell them, ah, obviously this Jesus is the Lord of everything in their life, including their pocketbook. Would your checkbook give any testimony? If not, you're a wobbler. You, you have a chance to be completely honest with yourself about this, but there are too many of us who are limping from side to side, meandering our way down life with no clarity, no purpose, no direction, no focus, no commitment. And if today you were to walk out of here and the Holy Spirit has stirred you and you were to say, you know what, he's right. 
I am a a wobbler and I need to lay all of this before the Lord. I need to be more faithful in the way that I live, the way I spend my time, the way I speak my faith, the way I spend my money. I need to do that. If we did that, then that would be awesome. That would be a a great accomplishment of the Spirit. If if as a result of this day we are a less wobbly church, then praise the Lord. But I want to call us to something more. This one really struck me in the latter part of this last week. Because we, I think this story speaks to the, to the impact of one courageous person. The impact of one courageous person. I, I began to think, who are the people who by their solitary stand have made an impact? A, a, a culture or a history impact? Most of you would be able to remember what happened back in 1989. Remember the Berlin Wall was falling and the, 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 the breeze of democracy was blowing through places even like China. Remember Tiananmen Square and, and the tank man? Remember him? Um, obviously the, the, the Chinese came in and they were going to crush this. And this one solo man with, a, with his shopping bag in hand stood in front of a long line of tanks. And as they tried to go around him, he just moved in place. One man. It was, a, it was a powerful image of the courage of one man in that moment. How about this woman? Do you recognize her, this young woman? Her name is Malala Yousafzai. She is the youngest Nobel Peace Prize winner ever. When she was 12 years old, Malala wrote a blog criticizing, really taking on the Taliban for their brutal treatment of women. And she, and they put a hit out on her. They found her on a bus, they called her by name, and the man shot her three times, including once into the head. And she survived that and continues to be a single voice in the opposition of this brutality. And you can't think about this weekend and not think of Martin Luther King Jr., uh, his singular courage. I, I once stood on the balcony in um, the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. There it is. And there's the piece that is cut out where his blood flowed from his body where King died that day. These pictures that I'd seen over the years, then I saw it in, in person. He was 39 years old when the assassin took him. But not before his words in a singular way begin to change the tide of race relations in our country. These lone, courageous voices of protest stood against the evil of, our, of their time. And I think that there's something about this passage that calls us to this as well. When we think about the word prophet, most of us think about a foreseer, a foreteller of the future, someone who looks ahead and can predict things that are going to come. And certainly, there's some of that in the prophetic works of Scripture. But by far... The prophets of God, there was a, their, their primary job was very different than that. Their primary job as prophets of God was not foretelling the future. It was forth-telling God's word. It was hearing God and speaking the truth into that moment of idolatry or rebellion or lovelessness. That's what the prophets were called to do. And how is it that these individuals spread out over centuries? How is it that they were able to hear God so clearly and able to have the power to speak these words, these powerful words in the face of such antagonism? And we are told again and again that it was the Spirit of God that was given out. The Spirit of God was laid on particular persons at a particular time in a a season when the Holy Spirit was not given freely and was often taken back. These These messengers of God were the ones upon whom the Spirit fell who were inspired, empowered to do the thing that God was calling them to do. 
Do you know the difference today than 2,700 years ago? The difference is that every one of you who belongs to Jesus has the Spirit of Christ indwelling you. And not just a little bit of Him, all of Him. And not just for occasions, all of the time. That was the remarkable thing at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit of God who had been given and then taken away. Given and taken away down through history. Suddenly the Spirit of God is poured out on every believer in Jesus. Filling them, empowering them, and equipping them with gifts. And one of the gifts we are told by the Apostle Paul was the gift of prophecy. Prophecy. Did you know that one of the spiritual gifts that we are offered by the Spirit is the gift of prophecy? Where ordinary followers of Christ are filled with the Spirit and able to speak God's truth, God's word. You exercise the gift of prophecy in your life when you speak the truth of God. Even in a hostile setting with words and power that when you're done you look back and say, I had no idea where that came from. You ever had one of those moments? When that occurs, when you speak up against all odds, against the the, the flow of of traffic, you're the solo voice that is speaking the truth of God. You're, You're behaving as a prophet. I think of a Christian doctor who heard how sex ed was being handled in one of our local high schools. And she protested. It was amoral. It was imp- infected by the, our culture, the way that this was being presented to our children. She protested and she offered to teach the class instead. And so she stands up and she begins to teach our kids sex education, but undergirded with the morality that this culture so desperately needs. I think of a man who serves on a board of directors. And, uh, and he became aware of what he considered to be unethical practices. And so he spoke up, the lone voice in that board, he spoke up and said, this is not right. And I think of another man who said, you know what? I don't care what the rest of this state says. There is no place in this community for marijuana. We're not going to have marijuana shops in this town. And so stood up in the face of great opposition and said, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to lead the charge in this. These were ordinary Christ followers who were filled with the Spirit and obeyed His prompting to speak the truth, even in antagonistic situations, in a very solitary way. And they made a difference. And by the way, each person I just mentioned, each of these prophetic voices came right out of this church. One of your brothers, one of your sisters, right out of this body. Do you know what the Apostle Paul said was the most treasured of spiritual gifts? He said the most treasured of spiritual gifts, the one that you should seek after, is prophecy. In, in 1 Corinthians 14.1, he said, I know there's a lot of these fancy ones and exciting ones, speaking in tongues and, and doing miracles and all this. But he said, here's what he said, eagerly decide, desire the spiritual gift of prophecy. So apparently, we as followers of Christ can say, Lord, we want this. We would desire this. We would ask you for this. And the Spirit is eager to give it. You know, I, I would love it if today our people hear the call of Elijah and they walk out of here and say, you know what, I've been a wobbler. And I'm going to straighten it up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to firm up my life. I'm going to walk the line that the Spirit empowers me to walk so that my witness is more consistent and clear. That would be great. I would be ecstatic if every person here today would say to the Lord, I'm willing to be your prophet. Not in an egotistical way, not in a head-swelling way, but I'm willing to be your prophet. I am willing to listen to you, Jesus, to listen to your spirit, to speak your truth. 
Even if I don't feel like I have the words, even if I don't feel like I have the courage, but if you will empower me, if you will fill me with your spirit, when the time comes, I will hear you, I will stand, and I will speak. And I will let the chips fall where they may. We need more of those kind of people in our culture today. We need more prophets in our church today. Again, not ego-filled, not bossing people around, but the ones who can stand boldly before the Lord and say, reveal your truth to me. I will receive your spirit and I will speak that truth when you give me the words and the permission to speak it. And so I wonder this day where the prophets are in this church. I wonder where the, the voices are who will speak out against the broken and idolatrous culture into which we are being sucked as a people of God. And so today, as I close the service, I want to do it in a way that's a little unusual. Um, I want to ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes, every one of you, even if, if you don't do that sort of thing out of courtesy for those surrounding, because I want to do what we would often do when we want to receive Christ, but I want us to ask for something different. First of all, I want to ask this. As you're listening to this description of what a prophet is, not a a foreteller, not a seer, but a proclaimer of truth, I wonder how many here would say, you know what, I think that's one of my spiritual gifts. So heads heads bowed, eyes closed, raise your hand up and say, you know what, I think I have the gift of prophecy in the way he's talking. I see your hand. All right, I want you to, if that's you, I want you to keep your hand up just right now because I want to pray over you. Lord Jesus... Here are people who are recognizing the gift that you have placed upon them, this gift of prophecy, the gift to hear your word and to speak it boldly regardless of the consequences. And so I pray for them, God. We need them. We need their voices. I pray for humility. I pray that they don't use this gift to lord it over others or to boss others around so that they might have a a sense of power. But I pray that you would give them courage to be the ones who hear the truth from you and when you give them permission, speak it. God, we need these gifted prophets and I pray your blessing upon them. Now again, with your head still bowed, eyes closed, I would ask this. How many would be willing to say, Lord Jesus, I don't know if you want me to do it, but I would desire this gift. I would desire the courage and the words to speak your truth in the right moment. If that is you, would you raise your hand up? If you're asking Jesus to give this to you, all right, now you keep your hands up again. Holy Spirit, you see the request of your people. By their hands raised, they have said, perhaps I'm, I don't have the courage. Perhaps I'm not sure of the words. Perhaps I'm, I'm cautious. But Jesus, if you want me to be one who speaks your prophetic word into the lives of my family, my friends, my community, my church, my world, I will do that. Empower me, equip me, release me, and use me to bring your truth into an idolatrous, broken world. For I ask this in the name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen.